them in a context that that is exactly what happens. If you look at a recent study that was done on the United States and Christianity in America, on the state of the church in 2016, we can say on the one hand, there's 247 million professing Christians in this country. We can say, hey, great, that's wonderful. But then you actually, when we look at their time, their money, and their energy, makes us ask some different questions. And a recent study came out just on that as to how we use our time, money, and energy in the church. Out of 247 million professing Christians on any given Sunday in 2016, only 35% attended a worship service, 34% read the Bible, 18% volunteered in the church, 16% attended a small group. And the real kicker is out of 247 million professing Christians, less than 7 million are regular tithers. That is utterly staggering. We have simply a checkbox Christianity. And then our lives tell a completely different story. We are a Christian nation. It sounds like we're a nation that's far closer to being a nation of rich young rulers rather than people that have found the joys of discipleship. And why is it so bad? Why is that so terrible? How do you run a church? How is it? How do you present Jesus as being precious and wonderful when that, when that little of our resources and wealth and our possessions go to him? It shows our hand. And I think a lot of it is because the joys of discipleship, actually now they're viewed as a bad model for life in our context. The discipleship opportunities do not offer me the financial portfolio or the retirement benefits that I want. It doesn't offer me the immediate gratification that we as Americans are trained to pursue at all costs. And if it doesn't give us that, then it's not worth investing in. And I think part of the reason, if we, I, I think there's a number of influences as to why those statistics are the way they are. But I think one of the deep underlying ones, it's not like we're just greedy or we're just too lazy. Maybe those things are true. But I think underlying all of those things, a much more deeper reason of the heart is that if you look at the rapidly growing anxiety in our frantic, fast-paced culture, is that we are desperately seeking security in some form or fashion. And wherever we seek security, that is going to be where we invest our time, our money, and our energy. Of course, wherever we want to find security, there go our resources. And I'm sure that if we looked at those statistics and we kind of waded through some of the stories that are common as to why all those resources are going elsewhere and not being invested in the story that God is trying to tell and being invested in another story, a lot of it would be bound up in security. But it might look different for each person. So somebody might say, you know, I look for security in my job, and so I work all the time. I have these goals that I want to get to, so I'm working hard to do this. But in the end, I work so many hours, by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm so exhausted because it's my only day off, and I just want to rest a little bit. Or you have a family that seeks the security for their children, which can be a good thing. But then the problem is, is that it becomes an ultimate thing, and so it's so busy all the time that by the time Sunday rolls around, it's like, you know what? It's our only day. It's our only time as a family together. But you know what? We pray before every meal. Or you have the idea of money, which is, uh, you know, tithing is balanced over and against our financial goals, where we say, you know, I'm not exactly where, I'm not in a place where I want to give to the Lord yet, because I'm not in a place where I want to be financially. 
And here's the problem I have with that. Out of 240 million people that aren't participating financially with the church, and yet we live in a context that always complains about people that are dependent and a burden on the governmental system, and yet when it comes to tithing, we easily say, I'm going to keep what's mine, and I'm going to let somebody else pay the bill. I'm going to receive from the church, but I'm not going to give to it. I'm not going to offer it what Jesus asks of me. We find security by isolation and avoiding people because we feel uncomfortable. We find security through distraction just because it numbs us out and we don't have to think about things that make us feel vulnerable or afraid. We are always going to seek security and there we will find our time, our resources, and our efforts and our energy. Now, why do we seek security? Well, of course, we want to rest. We want to find some sense of rest and peace. And so we want to invest in building walls that actually are able to push out things that we're afraid of. We can get things that make us feel vulnerable or afraid or things that attack what we want. We want to build walls so we can push them out as far as we possibly can so that we can just kind of put our feet up and rest in life. And of course, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want rest and peace and some security? We all do. And, you know, culturally, we have all sorts of promises at how to find security, but we also have all sorts of promises as to how to find rest and all the ways that, you know, secure, or, uh, our culture offers us rest. Two of my favorites are, um, you know, uh, the ways that sometimes the way that we find rest actually just raises our anxiety level. So if you think about, like, on a Friday, I always get these where you have um, these emails that you'll get from Netflix. And you'll be like, hey, because you watch this show, you might really enjoy this show. And you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard about it. Some people liked it. So why don't we start watching it tonight, sweetie? She's like, yeah, that's a great idea. So you put the kids down, and then you watch it. And then you realize over time, it's like, this is actually built on raising my anxiety and stress level. Because I watch it, it ends on a cliffhanger. And I'm like, goodness gracious, it's 11 o'clock. Sweetie, hit play. Just hit play one more. We'll just watch one more. And you watch it. And then, you know, one more after that. Because you got to know how it ends. And then it's 2 in the morning. You go to bed. And then you wake up the next day, and you're exhausted. Or if you think about the way that we talk about rest and the things that we own in our homes. Think about uh, one of my favorites is uh, if you watch enough of like the HGTV design shows where they remodel somebody's house. The, uh, uh, it's, it never fails. Sooner or later, if you watch enough of them, they'll use this language. At the end of the show, the music's playing. And everybody just kind of skips into the master suite where God's glory is shining brightly in through the windows. The music's playing. And it's just this beautiful redecoration. They show the before and afters, and it kind of pans through. And then sooner or later, somebody will use this language where they'll just say, Mmm, this is just a real sanctuary. This is a real sanctuary. So you're not actually supposed to live in a home. You're supposed to live in a temple. Because everybody knows that the Holy Spirit only wants to show up in a beautifully, beautifully remodeled shiplap master bedroom. <laughs> That's enough to keep all of the forces at bay that want to undermine your security. Or the fact that even in our, you know, home remodel shows, you know, like um, the great or the extreme home makeover, most of those people default on their loans because they can't afford the taxes. We will burden you by giving this beautiful burden, this weight, and it won't be restful. We live in a frantic, fast-paced culture that is so anxious in trying to find security so that we can find rest. And we're offered all sorts of promises by a culture that doesn't actually know how to find it. 
Have you found it? When was the last time you felt a deep rest of the soul? Have you ever felt a deep rest of the soul? I would say a lot of us haven't. We live in a culture that just does not allow it, does not want it, and yet it offers it. And this morning we have to confront ourselves with that question of where it is it that you seek security because that's the question that Israel is confronted with in this passage. The context of Isaiah 30 is that Israel is anxious, they're a mess, and they're frantic because the Assyrian army has turned their sights on them. The most brutal, the largest empire of the time, a nation known for their brutality and their violence, has now turned their sights on Israel and they're coming for them. They don't know when they're going to arrive, but they're coming. All the news headlines say they're on their way and they don't know when it's going to happen. And it just throws Israel into an absolute fever pitch. As we understand the story, they're a mess nationally. You have, they're trying to raise money to pay off somebody else to protect them. Yeah, so they, nobody wants to actually have a trade deal or offer money or some sort of long-term plan or you know, relationship with Israel whenever Assyria is actually going to come and conquer you. So their GDP goes down, and then they're forced to raise the money from within the country. So they raise the taxes on the Israelites, and it's so high that it's a burden that they can't possibly bear to raise money to pay off somebody else. But then all of that anxiety at the top level as they're trying to seek alliances elsewhere trickles down just to the average Israelite. And we know that. We know how chaotic life can be, how irrational life can become whenever stress gets in and it just builds and builds and builds. You have the average Israelite who's not actually going to God and making right sacrifices. Instead, they're doing other things. They're worried about what's going to happen to their business they've invested their life in. They're worried about what's going to happen to their retirement benefits. They're, they're even going to have a job tomorrow. Are they going to die? When are the Assyrians actually going to be there? And all of these things, you can only take so much anxiety, can you not? And so the average Israelite driving home, somebody cuts them off. And then that just makes them snap inside their head. So they get home, they sit down for dinner, wanting to relax a little bit. But then the issue of money comes up and they have a disagreement, the husband and the wife, about how they should go about dealing with this threat that's before them. And then they argue a little bit more. And then the kids go to bed crying because they were both shot, their nerves were shot and frazzled. Kids go to bed crying, but hey, it should all be okay because they can go to bed in their newly remodeled master bedroom. Do we not know that story? Anxiety builds and builds and builds. And when that happens, we actually get really frantic. And Israel, in their anxiety, turns to Egypt as an alliance for their protection. And God says in verses 2 and 3, he says, You turn to a people. You turn to Egypt. You have made an alliance with them that is not of my spirit. I never once told you to do it. You're doing this on your own, and you're making your own plans. But the actual translation of what he says is you're spinning a spider's web. And you're going to get caught in it. You're not including me in your plans. And so as they seek security in Egypt, of course, their time, their money, and their energy go with it. And that's where you get these two kind of weird little verses where it says, here's an oracle about the beast of the Negev in verses 6 and 7. You see where it says, they heap all their treasures on the backs of their donkeys. They heap all of their riches on the camels, and they journey to Egypt. Now those verses can be a little bit weird, but it's actually Isaiah's point in this prophecy It helps us understand what he's actually trying to say about what happens when we search for security apart from God. 
If you remember, to understand the language that Isaiah is using in verses 6 and 7, we've got to travel back in time a little bit, right, to whenever uh, the Hebrews, Israel, is rescued out of Egypt. Okay? So they're rescued out of Egypt. God decimates, Israel, or, uh, God decimates and destroys Egypt economically. He does it theologically and undoes every single one of their gods they claim to, to worship. And he destroys their entire first generation of firstborns. And he destroys them militarily. Utter, complete decimation. And he does all of it with a guy named Moses and his staff. That's it. And then the, the Egyptians are like, get out of here. We're done. You've caused so much damage. You take you and your God and get out of here. And by the way, here's all of our riches and all of our wealth. Take it. Just leave. Get out of here. And so you have these poor people called the Israelites that were so poor. And now they hit the sweepstakes and they're wealthy beyond their imagination. And they did nothing. They did nothing at all. And then they get rescued. And then within three days, they start complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. They get a little thirsty and a little hungry, and they say, oh, at least in Egypt we had onions to bake with our stew. And they start to say, you know what, Moses, we don't want any part to do with this story that your new God that you're bringing to us is telling. We want to go back to Egypt. It was predictable. We understood it, and it felt more secure. We want to go back. And the reason he uses this language of the Negev in verses 6 and 7 is he's actually reminding them that's the actual route you took from Egypt to the promised land. And now you want to go back on that same route, back to an old story, and you want to put yourself under the control and the power of a bankrupt puppet pharaoh that will do nothing for you. Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten your story so quickly? It's in these verses, you know, God is saying, Really? You want to go back to that? Do you not understand that you are taking everything I have given you and investing it in something that ultimately will only end up more in your shame? I think we know that story. The difficulty of realizing we kind of go back to the same things over and over again. And it never works. We relive an old story that we wish was different, yet we sometimes can't help it, and we live it over and over again. And Israel, too, to respond to that question, they say, yes, we do want to go back to Egypt and we don't want to respond to you at all. So they choose to live a story. They choose to live an old story of one that they lived before God ever came around to them. And here's my point for us to summarize where we're at thus far. My point is, is that the way that we use our resources ultimately shows whether we want to participate in God's story or it shows whether we want to participate in an old story that pretends as though God doesn't exist. And the way that we pretend that he doesn't exist is we go about life in a way where we never consider what he might want for our security, what he might want for our time, our money, our energy, and our effort. And we decide what that looks like for ourselves. That's an old story. And in verse 8, you see a transition from Isaiah. He says, I'm no longer going to talk to Israel because they have chosen to not listen anymore. And he tells Isaiah something um, really powerful. He says, Isaiah, Israel is not wanting to listen anymore, so I want you to write this down, and I want you to keep a copy of this prophecy, and I want you to keep it because it is going to be a witness for the time to come. It's going to be a witness for the future and a witness forever. It's a prophecy that's written to you. 
It's a prophecy that's written to you to understand what it looks like and what happens in the danger of when we seek security outside of what God would have for us and we live the old story that we want to live apart from him. He tells Isaiah to write it down as a witness to us. And in verses 9 through 18, it kind of overall it gives us a picture of what happens when we do seek to live uh, apart from God's story and seek security on our own terms. And we see two things in verses 9 and 10 that kind of exhibit the very first behavior of what happens whenever we exhibit that kind of behavior. And the two things are that, one, there's an unwillingness to hear the truth. And the second thing is that there's a willingness to believe in illusion, to live a life of image, and to be deceived. So there's an unwillingness to hear the truth, and there's a willingness to be deceived. And if verse 11 could not summarize it more perfectly, I don't know what would. It says, it says speak no more to us. Don't, don't tell us any more about the Holy One of Israel. We'd rather pretend like he's dead and go about our own way. Now, by virtue of the fact that this passage, it tells us, is written to us as a witness forever to be reminded of this story, it's easy to kind of look at that language and say, you know, I've never said that in my heart. I'm not unwilling to hear the truth, and I'm not willing to believe in illusion. And I've never said, tell me no more about the Holy One of Israel. I think we have to be careful and not let ourselves off the hook too easily. Have you included God in how you've decided to spend your time, your money, and your energy? We have to remember what Israel's sin is in this passage. Their sin is when, the, when their fear hits and their anxiety, it's not the problem that they wanted to seek security. We are frail, broken creatures living in a broken world. Of course we want security. Their sin came when they decided what was best for them and the most secure thing, and they never included God as the fundamental reality of any decision they're going to make about how to pursue that security. They don't ultimately rest in him and say, God, what would you have of me? And so, yes, that language may be harsh, but is it not the very confession of our hearts when we go about our life in a way where we never include God, we never pray and ask what God might have us do with our time, our money, and our energy? So think about a, a, a promotion or a job offer that's new. Would you immediately jump and take it if it just had a few things you wanted? Or would you stop and actually say, God, is this good for me? Is this good for my family? Is this good for where I'm at in life? Or do you have something better for me? It'd be hard to let this go, but I trust you. Or do we think about, you know, God, I'm, I've been so busy. Do I really need to start this new project? Do I need to slow down a little bit and just maybe spend some time with the kids? Just be a dad for a day, be a mom for a weekend, and just go do something? Do we stop and ask God, you know, uh, should I get my kids involved in another activity? Should they be pulled out of an activity? Is this good for them? Am I teaching them to rest in who God is and appreciate the story that he's given us? Do we ask about, uh, you know, am I drinking a little too much? Am I spending too much time watching TV? Am I spending too much money? Are we willing to actually include God in the way that we understand how we're supposed to use our time, our money, and our energy? And I think oftentimes we don't see God in these moments, and we do actually become unwilling to hear the truth because we don't, we don't go to God in those moments because we don't want to hear the answer. We don't want to hear an answer that's actually, no, I don't want you to have that. Or actually, I do want you to do this. 
We're afraid of what the answer might actually be. Because it's so easy to set our hearts on something and say, this is good for me, this is what I want, this will offer escape, this will offer security. And as soon as we do that, the wheels start turning and we begin to justify it, we negotiate with it, and we want the illusion. I don't necessarily want the truth. I want the validation that the way that I've chosen for myself is the best way. And so, you know, the job offer comes and you say, you know what? It's going to cost a lot, of, a lot of my time and a lot more hours and some things I don't really like. But you know what? It's a lot more money and we could use it. Or you say, you know, like, well, I don't really have a materialism problem or a shopping problem. I, I, only, shop from, I only shop for things that are on sale. Look at all the money I've saved. Or we think about, you know, I don't have a drinking problem. I've actually just figured out to where I just only drink on the weekends. You know, this will be my last project, I swear, and then I'll slow down. We do things all the time to negotiate and to believe the illusion that we've got everything under control. And the real sad part about that is that in that logic, it never occurs to us, and we never stop and consider that God might actually have something far better for us when we use the resources the way he wants us to. That God might really offer us a precious gift if we would let go of our own control and our search for security and trust that he has it all under control. And we can say the cry of the disciple, Lord, what would you have for me? So how do we see God's grace in this passage? We all do it to some degree. So how do we see God? How do we move out of that unwillingness to hear the truth? And how do we move out of that willingness to be deceived? Well, we see God's grace offered to us in two ways. We see it in verses 12 and 13. We see the first way. It begins to talk about where God says, okay, therefore, your iniquity is going to be like a breach, a crack in a high wall. And eventually, sooner or later, you're not going to know it, but that whole wall is going to crumble and collapse. And the destruction, that little crack, is actually going to grow into such destruction that it absolutely breaks apart, and there's hardly any piece left that's even useless to start a fire with or to get a drink of water with. The destruction is far greater than you imagined. And so, the first way that we see God's grace in this passage is that he allows the things that we put our security in, when we're unwilling to hear the truth, he allows the things that we put our security in to fall apart and to not work. And so we say, you know, I don't want to hear the truth. I just want to go this. And Jesus says, okay, I love you, but you have chosen a hard road. You do not want to wake up to what I offer you. You have chosen to put your security in this. And the only way I can get you to stop and wake up is to bring you to a place where it falls apart. And it doesn't work anymore. And I often think that um, we, we kind of have a very simplistic understanding of God's grace where God is just, God's grace is just this simple, gargantuan overlooking of all sin. Of course, that's an aspect of grace. But God is loving beyond measure, which means if we understand these passages and allow them to shape our understanding of grace, it also means that God's grace is destructive. How could he be a loving father if he just said, okay, I know you do all of those things, but I'll just let you go and just enjoy it and have fun with it, even though it's doing damage to you that you don't understand, I'm just going to go over here because Jesus died for those things. No, he's a loving father. And sometimes as stubborn children, we say, I've chosen to learn the hard way. 
I've chosen to learn the hard lesson. And God says, okay. If I have to bring you to the end of yourself, I will. And I'll let that wall that you have built up and your security fall apart. And I think one of the hardest reasons it is to let go of some of those things, those ways that we've had security, is because we often deceive ourselves because we'll take a good thing and we'll find our security in it. And anytime that happens, destruction happens. If we, have secure, if we find security in a bad thing, okay, we can easily, maybe a little bit easier, understand the destruction of it. But sometimes the reality of sin is it's so manipulative and so deceptive that it will tell us and convince us that a good thing is something to do and to find our security in that, which makes us so unwilling to give it up. And then when we are so unwilling to give it up, we don't see the compounding slow damage that it does. And so in those moments, God says, okay, so take a man who perhaps grew up in a poor home. Grew up in a poor home with no money and his dad could never keep down a job. Maybe he was an alcoholic or whatever it was. And he brought a lot of shame, a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, and a lot of sadness on his family. But that young boy grows up not wanting to deal with any of that pain, any of that sadness, and says, that's not my story anymore. I don't want to deal with any of that. I'm going to be somebody that is known by their integrity, somebody that's known by their hard work, somebody that's known by their discipline. Okay, those are great things. The problem is whenever you make that your actual security and your identity, bad things begin to happen. When you become a guy that's all about those things, and then that guy grows up and has children, and his children grow up, and he's always teaching them, saying hard work, integrity, discipline. This is how you build a successful life for yourself. And then those children grow up and all of a sudden he realizes there's something missing with his children. He doesn't really quite know what. Something's happened to where it didn't turn out quite the way that he wanted it to and he's disappointed and he wants more. And in that moment, he has an opportunity to realize, oh, I was more of a drill sergeant than I was a daddy. I realize now the damage and the destruction that that did because I found my security in it. Now, that man takes a good thing, but really, where does his security lie? He's making his decision as to how he'll find security based on his anger, his frustration, and his hatred towards his story and not dealing with any pain instead of actually saying, you know what, God, these are good things, but ultimately I need to find my rest and my strength in you. And no matter how hard I work, I will never find security, no matter how hard I work or how disciplined I am. Those things are no guarantee for security. Only you are. Sometimes we have to be brought to those moments where we are so maybe unwilling to wake up to the goodness that the Lord has for us that we have to learn those hard lessons. And we know people like that, don't we? You know, people inside the church, outside the church, that sometimes it takes a lot of loss. How many marriages, how many relationships that fall apart, how many job loss before somebody's willing to wake up. And God says, yes, even though I let it fall apart, I will still be there waiting for you because I love you. The second way we see God's grace is in verse 15. It says, In returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust shall be your strength. And then in verse 18 it says, The Lord waits for you. The Lord, your God, waits for you. The God who's gracious and waiting for you to turn to him. When he says that language of returning and rest, he's once again reminding Israel of their story. 
If you go back to the Exodus, whenever Israel is brought out and they're sandwiched between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army and they have nowhere to go and they don't even have any weapons. They have all their money loaded up, but they've got nothing and they're utterly helpless. And it says that God is the one who led them there to that very impossible place. They're trapped. So they say, Moses, what should we do? And Moses stands up before the crowd and he says, nothing. Do absolutely nothing. You have nothing to do but to be still and to be silent. Because the enemy you see today, you will see no more forever. Because the Lord your God will fight for you. Wait. Just wait. And God makes them wait until the nighttime. And then they have to go to sleep. Who wants to go to sleep like that? He says, just trust me and go to sleep. And then the wind picks up that night, and then when they wake up the next morning, the one place that they least expected to find a way out was the one place that God provided because the wind blew all night and the Red Sea parts and allows them to walk through. In this story of returning and resting, he's saying, do you not know and remember who your God is? I am the God that asks you to do nothing so that I might exercise my strength. He's reminding us that God is most willing to show his strength and to show his power when we are most willing to not exercise our strength and power. When we're willing to finally let go and trust that the Lord has it under control. We see this with Mary and Martha where God invites her to rest. You see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha getting angry at her because she's not helping out. And Jesus finally says, Martha, goodness, would you just stop and slow down? Would you just come and sit with me? I am your Lord and your God. Why don't you come and rest? You are so worried about topping off everybody's glass or clearing off the table and getting mad at everybody else or finding your identity and being so useful and making sure everybody else's needs are met. Why don't you just stop and come and sit with me? And you could hear in his language, he says, look, Martha, if you don't understand that if, if I am with you alive and in the flesh, and that still isn't enough to make you slow down and stop and rest with me, then what will it take? What would it take to get you to slow down and come to me? Is that not true of us, that we have been given the very presence of Christ? What will it take for us to slow down? What will it take for us to find our rest and strength that he offers to us? He shows us his grace because he is the God that waits for us now. We have two things in tension of how God expresses his grace. The first is that when we become unwilling, he allows us to pursue whatever it is we find security in. And he allows it to crumble and to fall apart. The other is that God's grace is that he offers us to come and return now to him and find rest. And these two ways of him describing his grace seem to be in tension with one another. So how do we resolve that tension? I'm going to close with two stories that describe both types of grace. You have the first story of someone losing, almost essentially losing so much and waking up. I love Johnny Cash and... Uh, um, his, his story is a very powerful one. He had a brother that died. His dad always treated him like he was the one that should have died and not his brother. He grew up trying to find his father's love and affection and validation in music, women, success, drugs, alcohol. 
He was a notorious adulterer. He was a notorious drug addict for years, an alcoholic. And finally, one day, he said his life was such a mess that he decided to end it all. There was a cave that was on his property, and he began to walk to the back of that cave. And he was going to just end it all and just lay down and die. And he starts crawling back, or he starts walking back in that cave, and he walks and he walks and he walks. And then he has to turn a flashlight on. And he continues to walk further and further and further back in this cave, and then the flashlight goes out. So he leaves it, and he starts crawling on his hands and knees for hours. He starts in this cave, and he goes in this cave. He finally gets to be so tired, it's pitch black, and he finally just lays down, and he says he's done. And then he said, all of a sudden, God's presence showed up in that cave to him. He said it showed up in a way where he realized his possessions weren't his own, his death wasn't his own, his life wasn't his own. He never had control in the first place, and he could trust in the Lord. And there was something about the Lord in the way that he realized that he had control over nothing that brought him great rest and peace. And it actually made him change his mind that now he wanted to live, but now he's stuck in this cave and he has no idea how to get out. So the only way that he could get out, he said, was he just sat there like, well, this is some sense of humor from God. Now I'm ready to live, and here I'm stuck in this cave. And he said he began to feel this really gentle breeze go by his face. Because the wind would come in one end of the cave and it would go out the other. And if he was still enough, he would actually feel the direction of the breeze and he would follow it. And it let him, after a few hours of crawling, it let him out. The other story is the story of my friend Porter. He's a minister in Kansas City. Came out with a blog post this week and he simply said, Hi, I want to tell you my story. My name is Porter and I'm an alcoholic. And he said, you'd never know it because I haven't lost everything. You'd never know it because my wife still loves me and my kids are still with me. And I've never been in public and had maybe more than one or two, you know, drinks and I'm out among other people. You've never seen me have too much or be drunk. But he says, just so you know, I'm an alcoholic. And he said, I've been 14 months sober. Haven't had anything. And he said, I have found more rest and more peace by pushing, that thing, by pushing it away than I ever really had before. And he said, it is so freeing because what I came to the realization of was not that I had to lose everything to get to this point. I just stopped for a second and recognized that when I was going down the story, it was just going to require more of my time, more of my energy, and more of my effort. And it was going to take, take, take. And I got to a point where I said, you know what? I love alcohol, but I don't love the story that it is giving me. And I don't love the place that it's going to take me. He said, I just had to stop. And he said, I have found more freedom as a result of just moving away from that and living as a part of the joys of discipleship in God's story. You have two stories. One is a story of a man that was essentially brought to nothing. And he met God there. And God was gracious to him. Then you have the other version of grace in our passage, which is Porter's story. He says, you know what, I don't want that story. I'm going to stop and return to the Lord because I don't want that old story anymore. I want a new one. God is gracious to both men and both men wake up. Isaiah writes this passage to us with this, these two definitions of grace to leave us with a question. God is gracious either way. It's just which story do you want? How much will it cost before you realize that you are seeking security in the wrong things? Jesus is worth waiting on. He's worth turning to.
because he is the God that waits for you. He's been waiting perhaps for a long time. Today's a great day to stop and return to him and hear the invitation of your Savior where he says, would you just stop for a second and come and sit with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would be near to us. We thank you that you find us even when we weave webs of destruction for ourselves, when we make bad decisions. Sometimes we attach to good things and think that we're doing good things and we don't ever really include you in our decisions. Help us to be people that offer our entire lives to you, not just our professions. But we truly walk the narrow road. Help us to live a story that you were telling. And not that old story that simply ends in more sin and more shame and offers security and rest, but never delivers. Help us to find it in you and you alone, no matter what you ask of us. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen.